This is The Guardian. Today, an episode about pensions. And if your first reaction to that was boring, then this is an episode for you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I live with my wife and my 28-year-old son, along with our dogs, which are out at the moment, which is why it's nice and quiet. Tim Jeffrey is 64 years old. He's close to the age where he gets to access his state pension. And pensions are something he didn't think much about when he was in his 20s and 30s. Maybe that sounds familiar. When I was younger, I never thought about it. You know, you're caught up in the moment. You're thinking about... Paying a mortgage, you know, buying a house, stuff like that, raising a family. For many years, Tim worked in an industry that paid really well. I was 25 years as a a newspaper and magazine printer. In the 1980s, newspaper and magazine printing kind of became very boom and bust. Printing was very well paid. Part of the problem with the boom and bust thing was that, you know, I never had a stable pension. I never really kept a pension going. Then he moved into the care sector, meaningful work, pretty stable, but much less well-paid. It meant he had to make some tough choices. So it was a case of paid a pension or the mortgage, and obviously the mortgage came first. Now, a few decades on, Tim's finding out about the reality of what being a pensioner means for so many people in the UK. My income is, is pretty much on a par with average earnings in the country. However, we haven't had a holiday for six years, so that gives an idea of how tight things are. If I work two days, maybe three days a week with the state pension and draw down some of my pension pot, I should be able to maintain just about that minimum income. However, that's great now, but what's going to happen to the cost of living and prices over that period and my potential for increasing my income is is actually probably not possible. It's so easy not to think about your pension because it's complicated or dull or scary or because deep down you imagine you're going to get rich somehow or just be young forever. You kind of think that uh, you're invincible and you'll go on forever. You know, I always say looking back, you come to a stage of usually in your 40s where suddenly you go, crikey, this is it. I think when you're younger, you always think things are going to get better. You know, that something's going to arrive on the horizon, etc. You don't actually think that you should be making that happen. For God's sake, keep paying the pension. For lots of us, this is going to be a hard pill to swallow. The pension age is currently 66. Soon it'll rise to 67. 
Chances are, within a few decades, most of us will need to keep working into our early 70s just to access the state's retirement fund. The system as it is isn't fair, and we'll get into why. But here's another hard truth. With just a few wise decisions now, most of us can make sure that when those golden years arrive, and if you're lucky, they will, we're in much better shape to embrace them. From The Guardian, I'm Michael Safi. Today in Focus, the problem with pensions and the little things you can do to make yours less ugly. Mr Speaker, our track record is clear. There is one party in this House that has always stood up for our pensioners, and that is the Conservative Party. Holly Toynbee, you're a Guardian columnist, and you wrote a column last year that caught my eye because you were making the case emphatically and elegantly that you are getting too much money from the government. How can that be? The government treats the old, anybody of pension age, which I am, very well indeed, because only people over 70 are majority Tory voters. Everybody under that age does not vote majority Tory. So we've all been feather-bedded. We've been given triple-locked state pensions, whether we need them or not. We don't pay any national insurance, despite the fact that that's what's supposed to pay for things like social care and the NHS. We consume 40% of the NHS. 40% of people in NHS beds have got dementia. The old consume a huge amount of money, but the better-off old don't pay enough in. The trouble with this is, though, that some pensioners are very poor indeed, and yet we all get treated the same, as if age was what counted. But inequality within an age group is much greater than between age groups. Interesting. So you're saying that someone who's age 75 who is wealthy is getting the same government funding, the same special treatment as someone who's 75 but quite poor? Absolutely. Somebody who's living in rented accommodation is really up against it. You know, it's a very hard life for those pensioners who are still renters, 30% of them, for those who've never earned enough to save anything much, haven't got much of a pension and, and no savings. Life is very hard indeed. And as the pension age creeps up and up, they have more and more of their life not getting anything out of the pension. Those of us who are still in work and you know, quite a significant number of people are, that's not taken into account. We get the same fat pension uh, as if we were in need. One of the things you mentioned there was the idea of there being a triple lock on the pensions. Explain that to me. What's a triple lock? Our benefit system is the meanest in all of Western Europe, so that if you're a family with children, if you're a single parent, you really are uh, on starvation. I mean, you're going to food banks. Whereas if you're a pensioner, you're very protected because your pension will rise every year by 2.5% or by the um, average rate that wages have risen or by inflation, whichever is highest. So every year, the pension rises much faster than all of the other benefits. Other benefits, it's random, rarely rising. In these hard times, they haven't really risen with inflation, certainly not risen with, with pay. Okay, so this is a system that on the face of it is grossly unfair, but as you say, it's also a system that's getting harder for people to access. Governments have been gradually raising the age before which you can access your state pension. Why do they say they need to do that? Well, there is a problem that the pension is phenomenally expensive. 
and there is a smaller and smaller generation of people in work, and particularly if they're not having many babies these days, who will have to pay through their taxes for a very large generation of the old. My generation, where the baby boomers, post-war baby boomers, very, very large group of people, and uh, they will all need caring for, NHS, social care, and it is the poor people in work who have to pay for us, and a lot of them are worse off than we were at their age. You know, someone of 30 now, quite likely be still living with their parents, much, much older age when people do actually own their own home, and fewer and fewer people do. And they're facing the prospect of having to work longer to pay into a pension system that they'll get to access for less time than someone who was a pensioner today. It's very unfair. If you are, you know, a low earner, if you've been a low earner all your life, you haven't got much of a private pension, probably none at all. You haven't got any savings, probably none at all. You are going to creep towards pension age in a worse state of health because poorer you are, the chances are you've had a harder working life and you are less fit. I mean, only 10% of people age 70 don't have any form of illness or disability. Professor Michael Marmot, who's the great expert on health and inequality, he says that if 68 becomes the new pension age, 60% of men will never reach that age without having a disability that stops them working. That means they will spend years waiting for their pension in abject poverty. Uh, And that's very great hardship and a huge difference between the rich and the poor. So when the pension age increases in a system that's so unequal, how does that actually play out in different parts of the country? If you're a man in Kensington and Chelsea or Richmond on Thames, wealthy place will, on average, live very healthily until they're 71. But if you're a man in Blackpool, Uh, you're only going to have a healthy life until you're 53. After that, you're going to be sick. And that means waiting till the pension, you're going to be on the lowest of benefits and you're going to be having a hard time if you're no longer capable of work. In the worst ward in Blackpool, the average life expectancy for men is just 67 years. You may not even live to get your pension. You won't get there. You will never get your pension. You will have paid in your national insurance all your life and get nothing from it. Wow. You know, whereas men in rich places are going to live till their 80s. You will live a lot longer. You will have many, many more years in good health, therefore be able to work longer, and you will draw your pension for a very long time. So in all, you'll take a great deal more money out of the system. It's somebody who's very poor and likely to die younger. Polly, you've talked about how this system exacerbates inequalities across class, across geography, but what about across gender? How does that play into this system? In gender, women live longer and they tend to live healthier for a bit longer, except amongst the very poorest women, and this is a change, amongst the very poorest women, their uh, age at death has fallen backwards. Their life expectancy has gone backwards, which is really shocking. And then if, amongst all of the poor, life expectancy is has slowed. But for women, it's actually gone back. And so 
what is actually happening with the pension age? What is it now? What is it going to be soon? And for somebody my age, I'm 35, when could I expect to access the state pension? Who knows? But, the, <laughs> but at the moment, it's uh, 66 and it's scheduled to creep up to 68 before long. And uh, nobody trusts any government not to push it up further. The trick is they say, look, on average, people are living much longer. Therefore, they should be working much longer. Well, that's fine for those who can, but they have to make a distinction between those who can and those who can't. Social class is a much, much bigger divide, and that's true of the young too. I mean, they, you know, the young are not one group. There are some who are standing to inherit a lot from parents who've got good houses that are going to pass on to them, and others who are going to inherit nothing. So I don't think age should be used as a category for deciding how much sport people need. I'd forgotten this. When I turned pension age, my payslip arrived, and I was suddenly astounded to find no national insurance. I'd completely forgotten. Mm. That's outrageous. I'm still in work. Why wouldn't I be paying my national insurance just like anyone else? So these are the problems with the system, but what would it take to fix it, make it more equal and more sustainable? To make the system more equal, you should make wealthy pensioners pay more. They should certainly be paying national insurance as a minimum. But they should also be paying from their property, 70% of them do earn properties, in towards a pool to contribute towards their own social care. And uh, I think that, you know, you can then do a lot to help poorer pensioners. There's pension credit to top them up. They could access their pension sooner than those who don't need a pension uh, at a younger age. Now, when we look at the needs of pensioners, it's absolutely true to say we need help with urgent needs, uh, social care in the home, and that's what we... But Labour had a very good plan in 2010 in their election manifesto that when you retired, if you had property or you had wealth, you would pay a chunk of money, maybe £30,000, into the pool to contribute towards social care. And then if you ever needed it, it would be free thereafter. So everybody pulled the risk. Some people would need it, other people would drop dead without ever needing it. Mr. Speaker, Mr. Speaker, when you're dealing with social policy, you seek consensus in this country. And, where you can and it was a very good idea, but it was immediately called a death tax. Deliberately broken the consensus even after they voted for the bill in the House of Commons. And the Tories shot it out of the water. People might need to pay around seventeen to £20,000 to be protected under a scheme of this sort. Let me ask him one final time. Are these sorts of levies ruled in or ruled out? But I think we should return to something like that that takes account of the wealth of the richest generation. It's really all about who votes Tory. And so the Tories never dare touch pensions. And so... The people on the other end of that, if it's older voters who are catered to most, I wonder, is it younger voters who are getting the rawest part of this deal? And, and what does that look like for them? Without a doubt, by every measurement, everything that the Institute for Fiscal Studies writes about this, everything the Resolution Foundation writes about this, the young are getting a really raw deal. They are paid less. Their career opportunities are often less. Their chances of owning a home are less. They need two incomes to get by as a family, have young children. I think life is much, much harder for them than it was for me as a, as a new mother. It's a very odd thing that somehow, in some way, we are a richer country, and yet that money is not going to the young. 
and not going to public services that they need when they have children. So this younger generation who are poorer than generations before are also being expected to work longer. And then once they do retire, they're going to draw from that public pension for less time. I mean, that's a pretty crap deal, Polly. It's a really crap deal and they should make much more fuss about it. I mean, they should be out on the streets. Lots of old people who are generous minded are very well aware of it. They know what's happening to their grandchildren and they should also be making more of a fuss about it, saying, you know, don't mollycoddle us. We were definitely the lucky generation born into a new national health. This leaflet is coming through your letterbox one day soon. It tells you what the new National Health Service is. Free education, free university education, no debts. But uh, we had everything given to us on a plate. And yet you hear lots of old people grumbling these days, saying, oh, the young don't know they're born and they've got things we never had. In aggregate, that's not true. Of course, lots of young people are very wealthy because they come from wealthy families and they're expecting very good inheritances because the inheritance situation has got more unjust. Polly, listening to you, feeling my blood pressure increase as I do, I think in France last year, the government legislated to change the pension age from 62 to 64, so that that would still be under the UK age. And the result was chaos, days of riots, protests, cities brought to a halt. Why don't we see the same thing in the UK? Uh, they had a revolution. They know how to do it. We never really learned. <laughs> so they have a, a, a taking to the streets habit, whether it's um, about fuel protests or whether it's farmers and their tractors in Paris. They just say no. And perhaps we could do with a bit more than that, instead of which we have now the strongest anti-protest laws of any country in Europe. Uh, and we don't protest enough. Coming up, the pension system sucks, but you can still do things to improve your shot at retiring in decent shape. Here's how. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com ACAST. Today in Focus is supported by BetterHelp. Here's a question. If you had an extra hour in your day, what would you do with it? Watch TV? Read a book? Meet up with a friend? Maybe a little nap? A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But for what? Perhaps to best answer that, you need to work out what's truly important to you, then make that a priority. Therapy can help you work out what's most important to you. It isn't just for those who've unfortunately experienced trauma in their lives. Therapy can be helpful for learning positive coping skills and for setting boundaries. It can empower you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. 
It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash todayinfocus today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash todayinfocus. Enjoying this podcast? Then we think you might love the audio long read. The podcast of The Guardian Long Read column, showcasing the best long-form journalism. From politics to psychology, food to technology, culture to crime, The Long Read offers great stories and big ideas. Subscribe to The Audio Long Read wherever you get your podcasts. Rupert Jones, you're the deputy editor of The Guardian's money section, and you've been reporting on the state of pensions in the UK for a while now, and that state is not very good. If you're part of a younger generation, say under 40, how prepared are you likely to be for retirement? One positive thing that will have made an impact, positive impact on some of the millennial generation as well as others is this thing called automatic enrollment, which came in in 2012. This is where everyone are sort of automatically put into a workplace pension scheme where the company has to pay in and they have to pay in some money. And you have to earn at least, I think it's 10K, you've got to be age 22 plus since 2012, it's over 11 million people have been put into a workplace pension scheme where, as I say, they're, they're paying in some money, the company's paying in some money. And that would definitely include several million people who wouldn't have been doing anything. In some ways, that's a sort of a shove, if you like. You know, that's something where we've all just, you know, employers and employees haven't had a lot of choice. You can, as an employee, opt out, but they make it quite hard to opt out and arguably you shouldn't opt out and you're getting contributions from your employer. It's effectively free money. Okay, so auto-enrolment is something that isn't very much the, the good column, one of the positive things about young people and their pensions, but I'm guessing that the negative column is perhaps a little longer. Tell me about some of the things in that. I guess we're seeing the workplace change, aren't we, really? You know, our, our parents and our grandparents, you know, some of them, they were in one standard job, if you like, where they had an employer. Now we've got more people, they're self-employed, they're on different types of contracts, they're freelancers. I think the big challenge really is what do we do very broadly about the self-employed? Now, they are not covered by automatic enrolment. And of course, they are not getting any of these nice employer pension contributions. One thing that I probably should plug. It's a particularly good option for self-employed people and for younger people as well, is this thing, the Lifetime ISA, mm. which people may or may not have heard of. It mainly gets talked about in the context of people using it to save up for their first home, but you can also use it to save for later life. I think it's probably a particularly good option for self-employed people. They're not benefiting from an employer contribution. The key thing is you're getting free cash out of the government. If you maxed it out to the max, you can get up to £32,000 in cash from the government. You can put in up to £4,000 a year until you're 50, and then the government will add 25% up to a maximum of £1,000 a year. You can't access it until you are 
uh, 60 if you're saving for, uh, for for later life. That's like a 25% interest on your savings. Plus, of course, you're getting any of the growth that you get off it and you're getting the tax breaks. You might as well be putting your money in that rather than maybe a personal pension plan. If you just search for Lifetime ISA, there's a GovUK official government page. You've got to be between 18 and 40 to open one. Okay, so this picture of pensions in the UK wasn't pretty before, but we're living through a cost of living crisis and it's made things even worse. Explain to me how. Well, yes, it's thought that several million people in Britain over the last two to three years have either reduced the amount that they're paying into their pensions or have stopped paying in uh, altogether because yeah, because of the cost of living crisis. And you can see, yeah, that it's a choice between keeping a roof over your head and putting food on the table and saving for maybe 30 or 40 years time. You can sort of see why in those situations, people are doing that. I guess the big worry is how many of those people are not starting it again. I would say you need to be, I don't know, however you do these things, you want to put markers in your calendar, in your diary for six months time, maybe a year's time to urgently review this. It is a worry that that has been happening, but I think that's the key bit of advice, I think, for anyone uh, in that position, really. And then being asked to think about your future self in that mix, to make sure that you put aside money that you may not have, because when you're 60, 70 years old, you're really going to need it. Well, that's right. I mean, it is entirely understandable why people are going to be prioritising the costs of today and tomorrow. So I think it is, it's very easy to be overwhelmed, very easy to sort of put it off and think there's no point doing it. I can't afford it. I've left it too late. Okay, so that's all a little bit grim, but there is some good news here, which is that actually we do have some control over this, a bit more control than you might think. If I was to sit down now and try to sketch out a way to make sure that I retire richer than I would at the moment. What can I do? Yeah, so I think it's I think it's baby steps. I think if you look at your retirement and pensions as some, you know, it's a great it's this huge daunting thing. That is the last thing you want to think about at the weekend or any time really. I would sort of say it's about breaking it into small little things maybe, perhaps you sort of break it into a few little tasks. Okay, so if we were to boil this down to a handful of steps, what would step 1 be? Well, I guess step one might be to sort of think about your state pension entitlement, go online and use the state uh, pension forecast tool to try and sort of get a bit of an idea about what you are on course for, because your state pension, if you like, is the foundation stone, if you like. I think that's probably the first thing to do, because it all depends on things like your national uh, insurance contributions, whether there are any gaps in those, which will sort of depend on perhaps... Uh, whether you've had sort of spells in and out of work, whether you've sort of changed uh, your way of working in the past. Uh, So yeah, that would be the first thing that I would do. Probably number two, the next level uh, on top of that. So perhaps you're in a pension scheme now in in your workplace. Well, this is a really good opportunity. Probably most of us, I would say, don't engage with that stuff as often as we should. You know, when was the last time you sort of had a real 
deep dive into sort of, you know, how much you're looking at getting on there. Literally never, Rupert. Exactly. You know, maybe they look at their pay slip and they see this sort of figure going going out. I can't imagine that most people, if you tap them on the shoulder in the street, would know, you know, so how much, what percentage of your earnings are you paying into your pension? If it's a tiny percentage and you have got a little bit of flexibility in your finances, then there will be people who will think, I can put in some more and it might be that you get some, some matching from the company. Perhaps that's number two. Perhaps number three is then using the pension tracing service that the government has to sort of look at, try and track down any lost little pension pots that are sort of knocking around that you've forgotten about. Maybe you were only there for a year. Perhaps it was a few years ago, and it's, it could be that they've the it might be there wasn't actually that much put in, but maybe it was in a really good investment and it's been doing really well. Interesting. So my first job was at a bakery. I was terrible at it, but you're saying. I could potentially have a small fortune sitting in whatever pension scheme was linked to that job. You could, yeah. You know what it's like. You're sort of jo- you're joining at the company. You're doing all the stuff with the sort of you know here's your pass for coming in. There's you know here's your stuff for the computer. I mean the pension bit. People will have completely zoned out on a lot of that. And maybe they signed some bit of paper in their sleep, effectively. You know, just like oh, sign that thing. Don't know what that is. Forget about that. So yeah, I think there will be people out there who do literally have a little pot of money with their with their name on it. They've maybe moved house once or a few times. It might be that that company has tried to write a letter to say, "Hello, you're still there. We've got this money." And of course, you're gone. And does it always make sense, Rupert, to take all those little pots you have from different jobs and put them in in one big pot? Is there any kind of downside to doing that? So yes, good question. I would say that for most younger people, it probably makes sense to have them all in one place. I mean, if you're someone who is admin averse, then you know why do you, you don't want to be dealing with like seven different companies. So it's less admin. It might mean that the fees are cheaper because some of these new whizzy sort of websites and apps that are setting up, they're obviously they're they're all competing with each other. They've had to cut their fees down. It is fair to say that it's not appropriate for everyone to sort of bring all of your pots together in one place. That I'd say that particularly applies to some older people with older pension policies. There may be people who've taken out pension plans, I don't know, 20, 30 years ago. They've got sort of little gold-plated features on there that might be lost if you transferred them over. Or it might be that they've got some nasty exit charges so that when you try and take the money out, it's they sort of hit you with some horrible fee. So you do have mm. to check. Okay, so I'm going, to, I'm going to recap the steps so far. Step one, check your state pension record. Make sure that you're on track to get the money that you think you're going to get. Step two, figure out your own pension contributions. Is your company putting in enough? Could they be putting in more? Could you? Step three is to take all these different pots and if it's appropriate, put them in one giant pot. Is the point here, Rupert, that this all kind of sucks, it's pretty boring, but in a few decades time, it could end up with you being potentially hundreds of thousands of pounds better off. Well, yeah, that's right. If you're a younger person, you can afford to maybe be in some uh, more, you know, a little bit more riskier investments. You might have 20, 30, 40 years. Uh, That's a long time over which your pot could grow. Rupert, you may have just saved me a lot of money. Thank you very much. Thank you. And that was Rupert Jones, the deputy editor of The Guardian's Money section. Thanks also to columnist Polly Toynbee. To read all our reporting on personal finances and pick up more tips, head to theguardian.com. And that is it for today. This episode was produced by Hattie Moyer. Sound design was by Solomon King. The executive producer was Elizabeth Casson. And we're back with you on Monday. 
This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.